Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Answering the government's prayers of eugenics dictating going fishing the next day, Condoleezza on a shopping spree bush in San Diego, but Kanye is the one you call crazy. To me, though there was less loss of life on January 6th, January 6th was worse than 9-11. <laughs> That's my guy, Alice. Mm-hmm. Your that, new friend. That is my new friend, Matthew Dowd. Storied... Um, it, Republican consultant for years turned Democrat now. Turncoat. I write my Substack. Um, oh, I gotta do another one. Do I, I don't have to do it today, do I? You can do it tomorrow. I'll I, allow it. I um. So I write the, the Substack about him and Steve Schmidt and these other idiots who are saying that that uh, one six is as big as um as nine eleven. Much like worse than nine eleven, not worse, just I'm as sorry, big I'm sorry. as nine eleven. Uh, worse than nine eleven, actually. Much like you did in the Jerry Callahan show last week, Alice, during a segment um, where you guys talked about the same thing mm-hmm. using all the same examples. So this guy Matthew Dowd, whose, whose voice you just heard saying that it was worse than nine eleven, I write this Substack that just tears him apart, um, just morally and ethically as a person. It really <laughs> a, a, a critical, um, really a look. At his deficiencies as a uh, moral human being, completely, mm-hmm. and in some throwaway line in my description of him, I, I mentioned he's a TED talky DC Beltway kind of a hole, whatever. But I take a shot at his character. I nuke his character. 
mm-hmm. really impugn every uh, intention of his and every notion, you know, and really his his entire personage. <laughs> I explode in this thing. It was a fierce hit, and he fires back at me. Do you have it right there, Alice? You don't, do you? No, I didn't. There's been so much stuff over the weekend. Uh, Of everything I say about this guy. (laughs) What he took issue with. Yes. Uh, He called you out on Twitter. Yes. He came into your replies. He must name search himself because it's not like you tagged him or something. So he's out there searching his name to see if anyone's out there saying anything bad about him. So lo and behold, he stumbles across Tom Shattuck's Substack column. Sorry, this is tough because unfortunately, unfortunately, a video of me on a bike was posted, and so it's a thousand miles away. What he said: this guy was somebody considers to be somebody, but in certain quarters, you Mm -hmm. know, he's a big country over party guy. His avatar was a country over party flag for years. Replies to my Substack, which says September eleventh, twenty twenty one, the eighth month and five day anniversary of January sixth. And then, among other things, I say uh, describe him as a political consultant pundit, the kind of guy who loves to be on panels in D.C., TED Talky kinds of things, jumped on Joy Reid's stupid fest to give you about the Capitol riot. He says, after I attack his character, mm-hmm. every measure of this man, Alice, I have boiled down to being immoral, a craven human being. His issue is this. As he says to me in a reply, you have no idea what you're talking about. I live in rural Texas and go to D.C. as infrequently as possible. Mm. Okay? <laughs> well, I, I could even write a correction if you want to on that. <laughs> Everything I said, and that's the thing. Wait, wait a second. You know, he's right about the fact I have no soul and that it, I'm obscenely um, grotesque for mentioning that 9-11, or for minimizing 9-11. He's right on that one, too. Wait a second. I don't hang around Washington that often. I, you know what? I'm going to reply to that. That rocket record must be fixed. I live in rural Texas and go to D.C. as infrequently as possible. Is that not a... Are people aware, by the way, are these, like, pundity type people aware that tons of people never go to D.C.? Right. Like, never... Like, it's never incumbent upon them that they have to go to D.C. I only go to D.C. when I'm absolutely pressed to. But the fact that he (laughs) took this out, that he made the tweak there... It's like, okay, so, kind of guy who loves to be on panels of checks, Ted talky kinds of things, yep, okay, okay, kvetched about the capital, yep, that's true, <laughs> consultant, yeah, that's true, wait, hey, DC, no, no, but it's, in, even the fact that he wrote, used the term infrequently, right? that's such a not, that's not a person, that's not a term a person who's angry about a post uses. Right. That's a person who looks almost acceptingly at the posters. Actually, it's quite infrequent. <laughs> that I hang Just around so D.C. Know. Lots of people never but, go to D.C. Also- at all. Like, I consider us to be people who go to D.C. like kind of more than average because we happen well, to like the, D.C. The point and is, think the it's point cool. is that he's trifling with this. And he also no, said, I know, he- but it's like so out of touch too. Like we've all, we haven't been in like probably five years. Like oh, I very infrequently go but to DC. It, but it, but also he says, "Alice, you have no idea what you're talking about." Well, because the, the claim is that you're a moron for saying that nine eleven wasn't as bad as the Capitol riot. That's the claim. Yeah, but he, <laughs> right, but, but that's he all says, fine. With but he him. says, 
You have no idea what you're talking about. Right. In, that's the claim. But I but I barely mentioned DC. That's yeah, barely like what I'm talking about. It's a throwaway line about the kind of guy he is. Yes. It has nothing to do with anything. I'm amazed by just where his, his psychology. I don't even dislike him or like him or anything, whatever. But like... Where he has no idea what he's talking about. If you're Mrs. Dowd and he says, Oh my honey, look at this. Look at this hit piece. <laughs> he has no idea what I'm talking about. Mrs. Dowd is gonna say, That's right, set the record straight that you do think nine eleven was terrible. No. Look at this part. No, pass that, honey. Right over here where it says DC. Are we in DC? No, we're not, Matthew. Maybe you should reply to a T and let him know that we go there infrequently. I, I just, I'm just, I don't, I don't know. I'm making something out of nothing. Oh, but it's, at least it's amusing, and it's not going <laughs> to uh, tick me off, and that's fine. Um, one thing I want to get to before we get to some other stuff, Alice, because this also blows me away. <sighs> How you doing, Allie, baby? Good. Oh. Good. I'm on the Jerry Callahan show again tomorrow. I've heard producing. that. You'll be producing the program. I will be. Um, so here's another thing. I want to get to a couple of things because they involve beautiful women. Alice. Okay. Um, the first one I want to get to is Megan Fox. Oh, yeah. Who, and this is, I'll, I'll never understand why everybody sleeps with Brian Austin Green. And <laughs> Does everybody? Far too many women of... Well, caliber. Megan Fox does, so that alone um, and, is enough. And, uh, you, you know, John Mayer, I understand, he's kind of good-looking and a guitarist and a musician, you know, and, you know, um, but Pete, whatever, with the track Pete marks, Davidson? Uh, that, I'll, you'll never get me. Megan Fox discusses her son being bullied for wearing dresses. Already, really, this is an open and shut issue. <laughs> Actress Megan Fox says her eight-year-old son has been bullied online by people who don't agree with his fashion choices. Is that what they are? Fox, I, I love this how it's written, too. It's just simply his fashion, with the gaslighting that that is. They don't agree with his fashion choices. Oh, really? Is he wearing a corduroys or paisley pattern? Is that what it is? Fox, who stars in the new movie Till Death, said in a recent interview that her eldest son, uh, whom she shares with ex-husband Brian Austin Green, has been criticized by mean, awful, and cruel people. I don't want him ever to read that bleep because he hears it from little kids at his own school who are like, boys don't wear dresses. I would say that the little kids at his own school are correct. Correct. Fox has talked previously about supporting her son's creativity. That's what it is. <sighs> Sometimes he'll dress himself and he likes to wear dresses. Sometimes. Fox said during an appearance uh, on The Talk... And I send uh, him to a really liberal hippie school. But even there in California, he still has boys going, boys don't wear dresses or boys don't wear pink. Those two things are not in the same category, though, by the way. <clears throat> boys can wear pink. Like, a guy can wear a pink button-down shirt in his suit. <clears throat> or whatever. It's yeah, not but, about the color. But this is how, uh, this is totally about a boy. The movie. Mm -hmm. she's showing how good she is as a parent by sending him off to get tortured because she's dressing him like a freak. Yeah. But she feels good about it. And, but, but if he has to go to school and get bullied and burned, his, tr his mother's trusting eyes tell him that he's doing the right thing. 
So he goes there and gets tortured by these idiots. And she's wondering, I can't believe they're being mean to him. They're not being mean to him. You're being mean to him. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of how I feel about a lot of this stuff is that kids don't know. Like, I mean, yeah, there's nothing inherent to being a boy or being a girl that makes you like dresses or not. Like, a dress is something that was only invented in the last couple hundred years. It's not something that existed in, like, ancient times. So it's not... We're not. We haven't like evolved to know, you know, who wears dresses. But that's your job as a parent because we live in a society where the clothes that you wear denote things like what gender you are. And kids aren't born knowing that, so it's your job as a parent to go, yeah, boys don't wear dresses. I don't get what's so hard about that. It's, I mean, like parent. A lot of things about parenting are difficult, right? Mm -hmm. That one should not make the top 10 most difficult things that happen is to tell your kid not to dress up like the opposite sex if they're not the opposite sex and you don't want them to be bullied. Right. Like, that seems like an obvious one. And boys do that. And it's boys bully boys for seeming girlish, girly. They mm -hmm. do. Boys, The boys in our, our eight-year-old's baseball team gave our eight-year-old one boy it, crap because there was pink in among the colors in his bat to several colored bat. right it's like blue and black and hot pink his right. bat and one of the kids was right. telling him of course the kid that couldn't hit a ball to save his life is telling right, our kid that his bat is pink or whatever okay sorry uh, uh, get a but, little defensive but that's fine because boys do that they're jerks and you're mm -hmm. not going to change fundamental boys they're they're dumb semi-primates uh, who uh, like sticks and getting dirty and jumping in every puddle and that's those are just those are our kids we have three of them and then we have one semi-civilized girl and that's fine <laughs> uh but this is this school thing this is her screwing around with what she knows is bs this is a woman who knows what gender is she knows certainly what she, the starkness of her appearance and gender has lent itself in positive ways to her career, I would say. Uh, I think so. I would say that uh, she's pretty aware of the male gaze and how it works. Mm -hmm. So uh, so there you go. That is uh, Megan Fox. Now, can you go to the young lady in Shea Richardson, Kaya Maliki. Uh, what's the girl's name from who was just about to get, get a gig? Um, if but then she said she Addison Ray. Yes, yes, thank you, Addison Ray. So uh, there was a UFC fight this weekend. Um, Conor McGregor broke his, broke his probably huff. well aware of that. Um, but T Man um, was there. Trump made an appearance and yeah. got a huge rousing, um, roaring applause. They, if you watch the ESPN run of it or whoever took it, they they certainly tried to stifle it, but. He got a lot of uh, yeah. Chappelle was there. Obviously, Rogan did had a gig at, at the UFC thing. Mm -hmm. But go ahead, Addison Ray. So uh, for this event, who also wears dresses? Mm -hmm. uh, the UFC or had hired a TikTok star, Addison Ray, age twenty, who I of course have never heard of. I haven't heard of her either. But she's cute, blonde, and she has bubbly. millions of followers on right. TikTok. And she's. She goes on TikTok and she's cute and sexy on TikTok. I, I assume that's it. I, I don't know that I've actually ever seen her. I saw I saw a still shot of her, and I, so I assume that's her thing. Yeah. So I uh, should I just find her? Where is she? Addison Ray TikTok. She's lovely. Um, 
And uh, she had been kind of hinting that she might get this job to uh, be a whatever news person, some kind of announcer at the UFC thing where she talks into a microphone uh, to people. And uh, she'd been kind of hinting at this on her Instagram. There was a picture of her in a gray UFC bodysuit and black fingerless gloves uh, where she tweeted, I like being the little spoon. And then in another photo, there was her and UFC fighter and commentator Maisha Tate with her legs wrapped around Addison's waist and her arms squeezed tightly around her throat. So I guess that was her way of, I guess, announcing it. Um, but then, then she did confirm the rumors. When she tweeted out, I studied broadcast journalism in college for three whole months to prepare for this moment with her in a cute dress getting ready to announce at the UFC. Um, so very exciting news for her. Right. Congrats to her for getting the gig. However. But, yes, feelings were hurt. However, a lot of people did not take kindly to this. No, no, no. You don't just... Drop out of college to be a TikTok star and get jobs that people worked very hard in journalism school to get. There are a lot of unemployed journalists out there who have student loans to pay, who worked very hard, who are not about to be outdone by somebody who just looks cute on TikTok. That is ridiculous. Who cares if she has a following of millions of people? Who cares if she's a self-starter who's created her own career out of nothing? Who cares if she's going to bring new fans to the sport that wouldn't yes. have been there anyway? There are journalists. Journalism jobs are a an employment program for people who waste money on journalism yes, school. Yes, you have to pay $65,000 a year to Columbia or BU or whatever and get a journalism degree for four mm -hmm. years and learn the tenets of being a progressive and a journalist for four years. And then once you've got that credential, then you're allowed entree into these uh, nobility journalism spots. Mm -hmm. And Addison Ray somehow interloped her way in and took one of these spots and then bragged about only going for three months so these feelings hurt <laughs> journalism majors who are sitting around waiting for somebody to notice how special and available they are, are angry that this little go-getter went, got after it, create, made herself a success, self-started, made herself a success, and got a gig that they thought should be bestowed onto them because of the aura of, um, aura of superiority that buzzes around them. And they're hurt. Can you imagine a more bunch of t cantankerous, self-entitled jerks and journalism majors? My dad was a journalism major, but I don't... What a... The, the worst. The worst. Can you believe it? And then, so she's lost her gig because they were upset. I, I, I mean, I yeah. agree with Dana so, White for, for so they uh So people tweeted things like, wow, three long months must have been rough. Surely you're qualified. Another person said she was stealing jobs from those more deserving. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry that you're uh, both unattractive and unproductive and can't do what she can do. But she does what she can do and they want that. No. you Rather than that, it was like when we were... I once entered a journalistic institution to bring radio to it, mm -hmm. and many of the people who were establishment journalists were not pleased. Not pleased. This is not journalism happening over there in that studio, even though that studio produced a bleep load of stories. But many of the journalists were very upset. What are they doing? All those stories. I'm a journalist. We go out and we get the stories. <laughs> 
Incredible. We can't create them in nothing here. Nothing worse. Tom Shattuck doesn't even have a journalism degree. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It, nothing worse. I remember one time when I went to, I went to the uh, Super Bowl and I asked Goodell a question. Remember, I asked mm-hmm. him about Trump, whatever. And uh, I remember talking to a sports editor after that who said, "I kind of wish you had asked a sports question." I was like, okay, "Yeah, if I was." You, I would have asked a sports question, or that guy there would have asked a sports question, but I wanted to ask a freaking interesting question, (laughs) because I want to deliver content that's interesting, that's cutting edge, that people want to hear, much more more closer to Addison Rae. I I wanted to ask a question that they wouldn't have taught you to ask at Columbia. You're the TikTok influencer of yesteryear, honey. Yes. No, totally. But this, this idea that, no, this is the domain of our people. We'll, oh, Dan Kennedy, the people on Beat the Press in, in Boston, the mm-hmm. PBS station, where they all, they all look down their noses. And this is not good journalism. This is, I was really impressed by a piece in the New York Times today where, and they speak like that. The Globe had a very interesting and thought-provoking spe- piece in a Spotlight article today, special set. Oh, God, you people are vile, vile, God. Yeah, similar to them are the people that go to school for film degrees, Mm -hmm. which is another very elite profession where if you go to a very fancy school for uh, film, then you're very well qualified, clearly, and it doesn't seem to have a lot of impact on your actual real-life career in film. You know, if if people are left to their own devices... But it's interesting because the Wall Street Journal did this big article about um, the... By the way, before we get to the films, Mm -hmm. let me tell you another thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, go ahead. Take it. Put it all out there, Tom. This word, they they like to call themselves on social media, especially most of them under 35. This word, journalist, you know, you're you're not a journalist. You're probably a reporter. Which means you go to the meeting, mm-hmm. you get a press release that tells you where to be, that comes with some quotes in it, and maybe you ask a question. Okay? Or you cover the town, the the water meter debates, etc. You're a reporter. I'm a journalist. <laughs> no, you're not. You're taking stuff down. Okay? You're writing stuff, a couple of quotes, one from this guy, one from this side, a little bit about the body of what the meeting was, and then do it again, okay? Yeah, it's funny. It reminds me a little, um, when I was in college, I had a professor for my um, poetry writing class that she said that you should never call yourself a poet, that you should only call yourself a writer and let other people decide whether or not you rise to the level of poet. And I think journalist is mm-hmm. probably a word like that. Like, you're a writer or a reporter or an editor. And if, you know, somebody wants to call you a journalist, then that's on them. But that, like, is a little bit, you know, not your oh, oh, purview to be like, I'm oh, a journalist. Totally. totally. But it also it also means, that, no, I'm not just a reporter. We're in journalism. It's something, it's a much more noble pursuit it's the bringing the balance together, this the b- balance of truth and observation to the people. The crucial, we're crucial members of the, uh, you know, the, the chain of society. We're doing the, like these noble knights, journalists. Mm-hmm. Oh, puke. Whatever. All right, now back to film Back to school. film people. 
the Wall Street Journal last week had this article where they looked at master's degrees and which are the master's degrees that graduate people with the most debt in proportion to the amount those people earn after graduation. And topping the list of insanely expensive master's degrees that don't pay off was um, the MFA film program at uh, Columbia University, which is considered really like the premier mm -hmm. film program in the country. And journalism. Yeah. So, um, but I don't know how their master's degrees work out financially. I think even reporters make more than this because on average... Uh, it, the, it, it, the, let me tell you something. Mm -hmm. This is a master's degree in film? Yes. Man, this is... and I'll, You're going to get to this, but this is case in point by... Being in the realm of, with all the right people, and all the right stuff on the wall, and going and doing. There's two different things yeah, that happen. Different worlds. Different worlds. So, um, this article in the Wall Street Journal, in their study of master's degrees, they found that uh, people who graduate from the Columbia University MFA program for film had an average student debt of $181,000. Great. That's the median. So half of them have more than that. Um, yet two years after graduating, after earning their master's degrees in film at this elite, elite film school, you want to guess what their median income is? 75K. $30,000. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know how they managed to have worse income Be than the rest of the country. They have worse yeah. income than they would have if they didn't go to film school. Do you know the why median? they do? Because <laughs> they're terrible people? Uh, yes, but they're also working at Starbucks. <laughs> they are. So they're not going to take jobs. They did believe that they deserve an excellent, you know, uh, ivory tower job mm -hmm. somewhere. And that's just around the corner. In the meantime... Like-minded travelers, anointed travelers, will be baristas until they take us out of here. We're not going to be in the middle. I'm not going to go work in, in hotel sales or something yicky like that, you know, right. and try to hustle for my money. I've got the accreditation. They'll come calling eventually. Yeah, eventually. They so will, I'll make my course. 30K. I'll be living with mommy and padre, and salvation is just around the corner. Right. So... I mean, so when we talk about forgiving student debt, this is the kind of thing we're talking about. People <laughs> who spend literally hundreds of thousands of dollars for advanced degrees in film mm -hmm. and then make 30 grand a year afterwards. <laughs> also, That's two years later. That's you've been not in school for two years and the it, median income is 30 it, grand. But also, Alice, much like radio and even, uh -huh. even, even in journalism, mm -hmm. where I just got out of i think even if the industry is dying these jobs are hard to come by the film industry isn't dying though everybody's well, making no films. but the jobs are hard to come by and who knows what exactly they're being set up the for. the jobs are hard to come by because a lot of people want them yes no i understand mm -hmm. there's a they're in great demand so you got to get in there right. so this is why you know this idea that you're sitting around waiting <laughs> I'll wait, I'm They'll waiting for you. They'll find me with my Columbia degree. Yes, you know, they should be here any time now. It's like, okay, but, you know, just know that while you're waiting, some other dude isn't waiting. Right, exactly. So this was interesting because um, this person was following this story clearly, and 
tweeted this amazing thread about their experience at uh, Columbia Film School. Uh, this is James Stottero on Twitter, and he tweeted, There were 55 students in my incoming class at Columbia's MFA film program. Only four of us ever managed to make a career out of it. Hmm. And out of those four, one guy dropped out the first semester. Funny enough, he's the most successful one, having co-directed Avengers Endgame. Hi, Anthony. Many of the students in my class who didn't turn their degrees into industry success were insanely talented, but Columbia traded on its reputation to sell them big dreams it could never deliver. During my second year, I suspected the school wasn't providing a launching pad to a career. Most of the instructors were struggling to establish a career themselves, and many weren't even much more experienced than their students. A fourth-year student taught our cinematography class. Wait, wait, wait. wait <laughs> This is Columbia? Yeah. Great. Great. God, college sucks. And this is grad school, so this is advanced college. This is special extra college. Yeah, but the... They're being taught by other students. Yeah, some kid named Chip, who's 25, who's... He's teaching. Uh-huh. The brass ring the program dangled was that your film could be chosen for the annual festival, where, in theory, big-time agents would see it and maybe sign you, but it was cutthroat to even be selected for the ah, festival. Ah, the annual festival. I'm sure there's no insufferable people <laughs> smoopering around that. And tuition didn't even cover the cost to make those films. You were on your own to pay for them. One year, the film that won the festival was a World War II story shot this in Europe. This festival process only has downsides. <laughs> was a World War II story shot in Europe, complete with a tank. Students were going into debt to the tune of 100K to make films with the hope that they might maybe have a chance to be seen by a CAA agent. Not having the money to make a film, I switched to writing. I teamed up with a friend to write a screenplay that. Well, I live at home, but I have a tank <laughs> in the driveway. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Not having the money to make a film, I switched to writing. I teamed up That's with a nice friend blue to write a screenplay that we hoped could be our calling card. We proudly entered it into the program's script contest, only to have the faculty judges reject it in the very first round. Within a year, that script sold. Not because of anything my fancy school did, but because randomly I met a producer's assistant who offered to read it, liked it, and championed it to his boss. Best of all, that assistant was then promoted, so it worked out for all of us. Wait a second, no. You mean that you're saying there's avenues outside of Columbia? Uh, mm, uh, he must be getting to the part where Columbia helped him, I would think. I was officially a working writer, but I was still two credits shy of getting my degree. I asked if there was a possible way that I could finish my degree while in L.A. starting my career. But Columbia was so offended by the request that they refused. So I dropped out within two credits of my MFA. After a few years as a working writer, a Columbia administrator asked if I would speak as an alum at a student event. I agreed to talk <laughs> to the students, but pointed out that I'm not an alum. Hearing the situation, two credits short, the ad admin lobbied the program's chair to help. The chair reached out and said he was confident we could work out an arrangement to get my degree, but he insisted that I fly out to New York City immediately for an in-person meeting. So I spent a fortune on a last-minute flight in order to hear his proposal. I don't, I don't even know why the guy went out to, to entertain this. Well, I mean, I guess he figures he sunk all this money into this film degree that he never got. Like, if there's some way that he can work it out to, like, actually be an alum of the school, like... I wear it as a badge that I wasn't, but okay. But instead of telling me what I needed to do to satisfy the requirements to get my degree, the chair began pitching me his idea for a TV pilot. 
in excruciating scene-by-scene detail. I nodded along, (laughs) waiting to get back to the terms of me getting my degree. But to my horror, I slowly began to realize that this was the deal. He made it pretty clear that if I wanted my degree, I needed to help him sell his TV pilot. Yep, the chair of Columbia's prestigious graduate film program tried to shake me down in order to jumpstart his own stalled-out career. I still don't have my MFA. That chair is no longer the chair, but still teaching there. And to my knowledge, they never sold their pilot. (laughs) How incredible is that? So congrats. That's what you get for your uh, $200,000 of debt. And it can even end up being more than that because, like, so they give the example of one student who graduated with only, like, 140-something thousand and then because he's on a repayment plan for that's income based and since he makes no money he it's with the interest now ballooned up to $300,000 worth of debt and he's going to probably die with mm-hmm. $700,000 worth of debt <laughs> because and these are these are loans that we've given these students these are federal government student loans that are specifically low interest that we give apparently with graduate student loans there's no limit on the amount so they can just borrow and borrow and borrow and it doesn't matter i mean like this is what bothers me when they complain about these scammy schools like whatever the phoenix one is yes, that yes. you like get an online degree and like that they don't get you anywhere in life is like this columbia film school thing is every bit as much a scam and most journalism schools too are every bit as much a scam as those like stupid online degrees that are from for-profit schools that are a scam. You know, it's every bit as scammy and we should not be giving money for students. If we stopped giving that money to those students in the form of student loans, the price of those degrees would plummet down to reasonable levels immediately. Immediately. The only reason they charge these insane prices is because we're giving writing people blank checks to go to these schools. It's ridiculous. And they should all be ashamed. They have billions of dollars in their endowment and they're you know taking soaking the tax oh yeah to give people worthless degrees and saddle them with debt for the it's, rest of their lives it's you, the biggest scam i've ever but seen but the, the credentials are it's like we talk about the credentials are a religion among parents mm-hmm. and mid middle to, to want to be high society it's so it's so it's everything to them it's everything to them and and blank is going to this school and blank is going to this school it's everything to them. Columbia grads include um, Alice, not surprisingly, Barack Obama, mm-hmm. and Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> There's some good not ones. Not film school grads. There's one. Joseph Gordon-Levitt went there, and you like him, but I'll always hate him. I do like for him. obvious reasons. If you're my age, then you know why. I don't think I've seen that. Yeah, it was the something you should know um, promo. I like in the Five Hundred Days of Summer. You liked that movie. Sandy Koufax went to um, Columbia. Uh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Of I don't know that. Tool I, Time. I don't know that. The, the Tim Allen Show. There, Max Kellerman is a jerk. Um, let's see. Uh, Amelia Earhart went there. Oh. Hopefully not for flying. Uh, Brian Dennehy, who we like. FDR went there. Kate McKinnon. Who had gets paid to have nervous breakdowns in national TV on SNL? JD Salinger went there. The fellow with some few peccadillos. George Stephanopoulos went there. Alice. There you go. From Massachusetts' own Stephanopoulos went there. Um, Did he go to the journalism school? Probably, oh, since okay. he's working at uh, ABC. And he, his, um, you know what they used to call Stephanopoulos when he worked in campaigns? No. I give you a hint. It's racist. 
don't know. George stuffing envelopes. Is that racist? <laughs> well, because it takes off of his last name, which is hard because it's Greek. Oh, it doesn't. Isn't that a great that. name? It stuffing is, envelopes. It is funny. And Alice, I'm going to give you. Okay. I'm going to give you. Uh, uh, Lou Gehrig went there. Okay. Uh, Jack Kerouac went there. Okay. Worked at the Lowell Sun. Mm-hmm. So did Tom Shattuck. I mean, I'm almost friends with him. You then. almost are. Art Garfunkel worked there. You like him? Mm-hmm, I do. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal. I have no feelings about him. And somebody else that you love, Julia Stiles. I do love her. That's true. So there you not go. Not working a lot in Hollywood these days either, though. So I'm not sure that's. They, the, she must have uh, misplaced her diploma. She should show them that she went there. All right, where to next? Should we get into the hard stuff, Alice? Oh, I suppose we should get into the hard stuff. I call it real politique. Okay. <laughs> uh, Soledad O'Brien had Kamala Harris on this weekend to talk about a number of issues, including vaccines and jobs and all of her all of her responsibilities. How do you do it? So, Kamala Harris never f- fails. Never. I almost. Mm-hmm. I almost like her because it's. she reminds me of somebody who, at various uh, cocktail parties, you see her and you, and she says the same thing every time, the same charming line, the same thing. And then you see her say it like with one guy at one party one day, and then the next time she's there and she says the same thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, you look, you look like my brother's cousin and who, uh, who he met in the Peace Corps. His name was uh, Diablo, and he learned to speak uh, three languages. I only speak one. I'm Kamala. You know, and you see, okay, I've heard seen this whole thing again, whatever. Very few people would actually refer to their brother's cousin, probably. <laughs> but but so so just watching her, her um, – her um just her normal just talking rag time that she does yeah i'm starting to it's starting to amuse me a little bit she so is so determined never to learn any skill <laughs> or any knowledge whatsoever other than seat of her pants she tells me it's like the kind of woman who like barely got there on time had to run down the hall or whatever seat of her pants hackery is almost it's amusing to watch so here's soledad o'brien who's going to ask her um, a very straightforward question about getting vaccines into into arms, Alice. I thought we would jump right into our conversation okay. and start with vaccines. Yes. Um, less yes. than a quarter of African Americans are fully vaccinated, mm-hmm. and I'm curious yes. if you think that's because of a lack of access. Is that because there's resistance to mm-hmm. getting a vaccine, and what do you think is causing it? And then what do you do about it? So I start with this. I love this. So I start with this. She reaches into her uh, her pocketbook for absolute horse bleep that she's involved with. <laughs> well, and as you were pointing out, like during the question, she always does this where she's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and like nodding listening. and very so seriously listening. looking. Like, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. This is yeah. so true. I definitely I'm, have an answer ready for this. Yes, exactly. I'm so like bucking, hemming and hawing to get in there and start answering this that I can't even... You know, stop myself from making noises. I'm so wanting to start answering, but you keep asking. The vaccines are safe, they are free, and they will save people's lives. One in three black Americans know somebody who has died from COVID. Think about that. So the impact on the community. Think about this very different subject, tangentially related to what you asked. Let's think about this. 
Come with me, Soledad. Here, sit in the passenger seat as we go by down this road that you never asked to go down. The impact on individuals, on their families, is profound in terms of the loss. Um, access is an issue, to be sure. I, I am of the opinion that, yes, we know the history. We know the Tuskegee experience. We know, we know all that. But we also know that Dr. Kizzy Corbett, a black woman, was a creator of the vaccines that are saving lives. So, in other words, Salad, uh, what would you like in your flim flam? <laughs> you can have any flavor of it here. You're getting flim flam, but you can have a shot of caramel in there. You can get uh, chai flim flam. It matters what you want. But that's what you're going to get. I'm going to mention Tuskegee Experiments for a second and go into Dr. Dr. Uh, Kipsy Blipsy, whatever. And you're going to be impressed with that. And that just shows right there. I am assuaging the fears of people. I really do believe the biggest issue is information. Getting the information to the people about the safety of it, the fact that it's free, the fact that it is accessible. And we put in place um, per assistance to get and make it easier for people to get the vaccine. Um, and it's also the misinformation about the vaccine and the nature of it themselves. Wait, like the misinformation where a major vice presidential candidate in the middle of the campaign claimed that she wouldn't trust the vaccine because it was developed under Trump and she wouldn't wasn't going to get it. Like, President Trump has promised like a coronavirus vaccine by the end of the year or maybe sooner. Would you trust that vaccine? I think that we have learned since this pandemic started, but really before that, that there's very little that we can trust that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth. No. I would not trust his word. I would trust the word of public health experts and scientists, but not Donald Trump. So let's just say there is a vaccine that is approved and even distributed before the election. Would you get it? Well, I think that's going to be an issue for all of us. Um, I will say that I would not trust Donald Trump. And it would have to be a credible source of information that talks about the um, the efficacy and the and the reliability of whatever he's talking about i will not take his word for it he wants us to inject bleach i no, i will not take his word there you go there i will not go. that's how we feel about trump vaccines so. yeah i mean it's awful and here's the thing i'm gonna repeat myself one in three black people in america know somebody who has died from this disease and he, and here's the other point that i will make as if she's made points already and also, I don't even, like, believe that that statistic... First of all, it's not that impressive a statistic. And second of all, like, I don't think it's true. Like, basically everyone I know knows someone who died of COVID. Like, do you know... I feel like that's, like, that number of degrees of separation, it has to be higher than one in three. And, like, the as we know, the rates were higher in the black community, so I would think it would be even higher, but okay. Virtually everyone who is in a hospital right now because of COVID-19 is unvaccinated. Virtually everyone who has died from COVID-19 was unvaccinated. Wow. The truth bombs like that will get people running to the uh, walk-in clinics. So I mean, but there's no, what she said earlier is false. There's no access issues anymore. No, there's no lack of information anymore. Everybody has it's access. It's over. Everybody okay. has information. You they're going to get it or they're not. Like, there's not a lot you can do about that except go on with your life. You've given the, everybody the brochure that tells them all the reasons they should love you and they don't love you. Sorry. It just happens. Okay? Here's one line that, that she said that I thought was very interesting. And this is just a, 
she's talking about what are you doing for black families, unemployment, yada, yada. Listen to this one line. I just thought, thought it was interesting in, in isolation. Families get an extra check now every month instead of at the end of the year to help them raise their kids. Hmm. Is that a good thing? Here, this is to help you raise your kids. Families get an extra check now every month instead of at the end of the year to help them raise their kids. Don't. Aren't daddies also good to help raise kids? I would say so. I think it's good. Families get an extra check now every month instead of at the end of the year to help them raise their kids. Let's talk about black businesses. Um, I've seen numbers that up. So talking about black businesses. Mm -hmm. And I agree from what I've seen, many black businesses have been devastated by local on the ground Democratic politicians with the blessing of these federal national politicians right here. So she's going to go around and survey the damage and suggest it's something other than their response to the coronavirus. You killed all the businesses, okay? Don't look around and say, wow, if you realize how this this disease is devastated. No, it didn't. Disease didn't devastate any businesses. To 40, 50 percent mm-hmm. gone out of business, right? And we know that our businesses are part of the heartbeat of the community. It is not only part of the social and cultural fabric of the community. It is those business owners that... Did you see what was happening to the heartbeat of the community last year? When bombs in city blocks in entire areas of uh, cities were turned into autonomous countries? She saw it. She saw it. She wanted people to bail out the people that did it. So she definitely noticed it happening. Civic leaders that hire locally, that mentor... Um, and so what we have done is, for example, I'm working on the community banks, getting them $12 billion with a focus on minority and women-owned businesses to make... Hmm. Are banks allowed to... <laughs> Federal banks. <laughs> Are banks allowed to uh, focus on specific races Whites when they make need loans? need not imply to, for a... For, make yeah. sure that we are providing black entrepreneurs with access to capital. That is a huge issue. Sorry. It was an issue before the pandemic. The black it bank. remains an issue that was highlighted by the pandemic. We need to support our black businesses. They, it, the, the, what makes it, of course, vile is like we just said, they destroyed those businesses. Mm-hmm. And now they're looking around and saying, no, you know, it's about, it's all about lenders. For example, in Oakland, the place of my birth, a woman who was running a catering business, right, started out her kitchen. And out of the community, and then during the height of the pandemic, she's feeding folks who couldn't afford meals. And when she started her business out of her kitchen, um, she was told by the bank she was unbankable. Unbankable. When she started her business, Alice, Mm -hmm. she was told that she was unbankable. Unbankable. I'm going to start that in the beginning for you, Alice. I heard the whole thing. For example, in Oakland, the place of my birth, a woman who was running a catering business, right? Started out her kitchen and out of the community. And then during the height of the pandemic, she's feeding folks who couldn't afford meals. And when she started her business out of her kitchen, um, she was told by the bank she was unbankable. A word she had never heard before. Many black business owners, small black business owners were told that. Exactly. Unbankable? Well, to me, 
I believe there have been several times in Tom Shattuck's life where he has been unbankable. <laughs> now might be one of them, as a matter of fact. I'm not sure. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. What could that mean? <laughs> could it have anything to do with, like, credit score, assets, and liabilities, <laughs> yes. income? <laughs> yes, I believe I still get calls from... Uh, phone numbers that are marked likely spam that are telling me how unbankable I am. Because you don't see my vision? Because you don't see the value of my... Because you don't see my vision? <laughs> no, hear me out. I realize I've defaulted at bank A, B, C, D, and E, and F, but I've got a vision here. Hear me out. Imagine here, it's we're going to deliver martinis in <laughs> martini glasses by drone. Now, hold on. Hold on. Think this through with me. Let's spitball here first. You have stiffed every bank you've worked with, and your idea is stupid. Um, we think you're unbankable. Must be unbankable. racism. Unbankable? I've never heard that word before. Well, I don't know how the other five banks that you stiffed put it, but here it means that we can't do business with you because we'll go out of business if we invest in people like you. That's unbankable. Work in my community. And so the work that we are doing... You don't believe in my vision? <laughs> We have seen the results of your vision before, and no one in your vision is paying the debts back. To support the community bank, CDFIs, is about making sure that we have a financial banking system within the community of the community who gets the community to provide resources for entrepreneurs. I like the idea of resources for entrepreneurs, and I, I don't mind certain SBA, et cetera, et cetera, but... This oh, first of all, talk about unconstitutional. Yeah. If you're going out with the federal guidance for the money for only certain colored people, then you get a problem. Well, and by the way, so the whole premise of like the critical race theory thing originally as a legal theory is that even laws that on paper are colorblind laws can affect black people differently from white people, right? And set black people back, even though the law itself doesn't say anything about race mm -hmm. in it, right? So that's the premise, right? And But then if that's true, then you also have to accept, if you believe laws that are race blind can impact different races differently, then you also have to accept that you can do colorblind laws that help black people disproportionately as well. You know, you could have Rand Paul's Breonna Taylor bill that ends no-knock raids. That would probably mm. save more black people's lives than white people's lives, even though the law itself on paper doesn't say anything about race. Mm -hmm. If you set up opportunity zones in blighted cities on the basis of certain economic metrics of income and stuff and you you know lowered regulations in those areas so that you could let businesses get started that on paper is a colorblind law but that would help black entrepreneurs probably disproportionately to white entrepreneurs there are ways to do it that are fair and that are just and that still you know help correct for past injustices without directly just going out and saying we're going to give black people more money than white people because like they're too unbankable. George Floyd got killed by a cop in Minneapolis. Now we're installing um, you know discriminatory laws on the federal level because there was a bad cop. Um, uh, so this is let's go to uh, police in crime happening right now. The Crime rate in uh, no the murder rate the homicide rate is up in it's something like fifty percent up in New Haven in Hartford and Houston and what is the other 
It is up in um, Hartford, Houston, homicides up 35%. Atlanta, 60%. 60%, dang. Um, so um, what do we do about this? The administration has proposed using federal funds, the money from the American Rescue Plan, yeah. to really fund police departments. Uh, at the same time, there have been many calls, as you well know, about defunding police or taking money from police department budgets and using them, mm -hmm. you know, for example, uh, to help with mental health issues, sort of yep. fund something else. Okay. How do you juggle those two things? How do you both reform the police, make policing different, at the same time, yep. give money to yep. police departments? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, I'd say that um, we should not be offered and certainly not accept a false choice. Like when we're talking about gun violence, we need to deal with that. So as an administration, we're saying, for example, the firearms dealers, that those who are violating the law, there needs to be a consequence for that. So we're now out of the cities where those crimes are up. We're out of there and we're at gun shows. That's how we're going to deal with the problem well, also, on the streets. The making gun manufacturers liable for people getting shot with guns is not what she said, like making firearms dealers who are breaking the law responsible. Like people who break the law are already responsible. There's already laws against firearms dealers, like handing out guns illegally. Like that's why it's called illegally. You know, right. there's not, she's like also, not even being honest about the issue. No, she's not. She's not. She's moving it over to the issue that they want it to be, mm -hmm. you know, which is hassling legal uh, folks. Uh, meanwhile, there are enough guns right now she can do all she wants to to gun dealers. There are enough guns right now in the cities to wreak havoc, and they are wreaking havoc. So, in in you know, there are people in the cities right now who are happy to kill each other. So that is the thing. So, is she going to address that? Nope. They're going to go hassle somebody in a Nebraska gun store. On the issue of policing, we need accountability. And we are, and I was actually one of the original authors of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And I feel very strongly that needs to be passed. There needs to be accountability for police officers who break the rules or break the laws. Right. And where is Derek Chauvin right now? Uh, in prison. Right. Isn't that accountability? Or like, what, 20-something, 30 years? Right. A long time. Think that's accountability. They got him. He went to trial. He's in jail. Accountability. I think the <laughs> cops around the country certainly are going to say to themselves... You know the thing that we do when we lean on the guy who's on the ground? Maybe um, maybe we'll take a different approach. There are certain communities for which we see a big police presence. Here we go. You know where this is going. Ugh. One of Alice's favorites. In other communities, we don't see a big police presence. But you know what you see? There go! <laughs> <laughs> just totally at random. Some communities just randomly have tons of police and others just don't. It's weird. They it was just felt the police officers the, just fell from the sky exactly, and landed in the exactly. community. Yes, yes. Like uh, in France, they're in Normandy. We don't know where they dropped. It could be anywhere. The drop zone. It could be here, Punta Hawk. I don't know. There are certain communities for which we see a big police presence. In other communities, we don't see a big police presence. But you know what you see in those communities? Well-funded schools. Mm-hmm. High rates of home ownership. Small businesses that have access to capital. Okay, I'll just... <laughs> People who have access to health care, including mental health care, and it's affordable and available. 
And in those communities, you don't see a large police presence. Let's understand what makes for a healthy community. So what is she saying here, Alice? She's saying that because AOC has said similar stuff, like, what do we mean when we say defund the police? We mean we want the suburbs where they don't have that many police and everything just works great. She's saying that the reason why there are a lot of police interactions in urban communities um, with a high proportion of minorities, uh, the reason why there are so many police interactions there is because those cities, those communities, have systematically overfunded the police on purpose to the detriment of schools and social services and mental health assistance and everything else. And that's why the suburbs are better, because they decided to, instead of militarizing their police forces, like fund schools. So the difference between, you know, Wellesley and West Roxbury. Well, West Roxbury No, oh, sorry, nice. not West Roxbury. The difference between Wellesley, I was just going for W's. Um, Wellesley and uh, there's no real HUD W, right? I don't know. Wellesley and Roxbury uh, yeah. is just, the, the difference mm. is just that Wellesley chose to not fund the police and instead fund really good schools. So if Boston decided just to, you know, take a lot of money out of the police force and instead put it into their schools, then they would be like Wellesley. Right. And the flaw in this argument? Um, the flaw is that the reason why the police are heavily funded in places like Boston is because there was inherently more crime there before. It's a chicken and egg issue where, you know, there's crime. And yeah, there are some systemic, quote unquote, reasons why mm -hmm. there is more crime in Boston than in Wellesley, including, you know, incomes and two parent households and other things that are complicated that people don't want to talk about. But they spend a lot on the schools in Boston, too, by the way. Right. And I believe that just about every school uh, has been bailed out. Uh, schools have gotten a lot of money over the last Oh, yeah. Year. They can't figure out what to do with it right. now. They have so much money, the schools, right. from the COVID bills. But they're not going to use it to do the hard stuff, which is to teach the kids, because there's too much politics. There's too much... I mean... No, they're going to buy a lot of copies of Ibram X. Kendi's yes. book to give to middle schoolers. Exactly. And, and that's literally true. <laughs> that's literally true. Buying, I'm they, not they making just, that up. They just said it a couple days ago. They just had the... Yeah, AFC. the American Federation yep. of Teachers bought hundreds of thousands of copies yes. of the book to give to middle schoolers. So the kids there can learn how the system's rigged and they have no shot and no future. And, and some other kids can learn that they're guilty... Mm -hmm. Instead of, of trying to give right. those kids a shot and a future, right. they're going to just tell them it's hopeless. And we're going to get back to that in a second. And it includes the resources that everybody needs every day. We got it. We got what you're saying here. Let's go to voting. There are intentional attempts to deprive, in particular, um, black and brown and students and Native Americans and Asians. Wow. Um, the access to voting. Wow. Voting is a right. There's no question about that. We are not fighting... Um, for the we have the right. What they're trying to do is is make the right meaningless by depriving access. Think about what they're doing in these states. Um, they're basically punishing people for standing in line to vote. They're punishing people for standing in line to vote. They're saying, "Well, if you're going to be standing in that line for all those hours, you can't have any water or any food." 
So what, what can you do about that? You can't have water or food. No, That's nobody can have water is. or food. You will starve to death if the line is slow enough. And that is, of course, her trying to scare minorities, black people and brown people, into thinking that the power, the racists at the top are doing whatever they can because racism is everywhere to disenfranchise them. Mm-hmm. You can have water. You can be bring jugs of water with you. You can have as much food. You can have a. You can have a, bring a little red wagon full of Happy Meals if you want to. If you live in some it. states, you can probably drink in line to vote. Yes, absolutely. So what she's saying is false. You know, this is all based on the Georgia thing. You know, where you, you can't have somebody hand out water and say vote for Bill while they're doing it. You know, this is. But but in this just goes to tell you that they don't care about the race situation in the country. This goes, this works against the spirit of what she's saying and what certain communities need and what they don't. Because if you're going to be insincere, disingenuous, about something like this, in order to manipulate a voting block of people, then you're simply a cynical bottom feeder. And that's it. And that's fine. That's just what she is. You know, I, I it, it is kind of vile. It's too bad that journalists don't pick up on this stuff but it would be kind of nice if somebody pointed out how vile and divisive and poisonous to society this is Mm -hmm. this is absolutely inciting people yeah and my favorite is with the voting laws when people write analysis and they're like you know it's unclear how many people these laws will really be able to stop from voting since they'll still have a three-month window to get in their absentee ballot instead of a six-month window so it looks like their plan is going to backfire they're not going to be able to keep us from voting after all like and i'm like yeah that's the point is it doesn't keep you from voting you psychos (laughs) is agreeing to voter id one of those compromises that you'd support i don't think that we should underestimate what that could mean she is now floating in space and is <laughs> stacy abrams said we could have voter id right. she in fact told us that nobody is against voter id stacy abrams is good at the game kamala is not because in some people's mind that means well you're gonna have to um xerox or or, or photocopy your ID to send it in to prove you are who you are. Well, there are a whole lot of people, especially people who live in rural communities, who don't, there's no Kinko's, there's no Office Max near them. People have to understand that when we're talking about voter ID laws, be clear about who you have in mind and what would be required of them to prove who they are. Where are the, I want to see on a map, we can use a heat map showing me where People can't make copies. <laughs> no. All the way from Cheyenne to West Waco. Not a copy in sight. Can't be done. <laughs> Impossible. Office Max. I mean, there may not be Office Maxes near many people. <laughs> All we have is originals here. In the Great Plains states, we only have the original version of everything. We can't make <laughs> copies. Still waiting. It's very inconvenient. Very inconvenient. We have to make hand copies of everything. Yep. We got to scrape it with a sideways pencil, and hopefully it comes through. Yeah, we type everything on typewriters, and then... Of course people have to prove who they are, but not in a way that makes it it almost impossible for them to prove who they are. What, like writing the last four digits of their social security number on their absentee (laughs) ballot? Ooh. Of course people have to prove who they are. 
but not by <laughs> proving who they are. Not by the ways that we have them prove who they are. You know uh, the people for whom it's impossible to prove who they are? Um, people that copy machines? No, people who aren't who they say they are, who are returning, say, It is ballots. tougher for them. <laughs> it is tougher for them. Here's the, um, the short list of what you're overseeing, and I've left things out. Okay. Immigration. <laughs> uh, increasing broadband access. Black maternal mortality. Racial inequality. Women in the workforce. Infrastructure. We just talked about voting rights. She's got all spinning a lot of plates. I'll wow. tell you, magnificent. That seems like a lot for one person. Oh, don't forget I'm in charge of the Space Council. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, this is, a, this is the short part. Did you tell your uh, press secretary that it exists? So less. Can one person do all that realistically? Well, you know, I've always multitasked, and, um, and certainly there's a lot to, to get done. Um, yeah, maybe I don't say no enough. <laughs> and that was the uh, pinnacle of the interview. Can you imagine how mad the Biden people must be about this interview? Maybe I don't say no enough. Yeah, they're making me take on all these things. I should really just tell them no. They've just asked too much from me. Typical. Typical, you know, pushing it all on the uh, black lady. Mm, yeah, oh, and in the meantime, that, the Boston Globe. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. Thank you, Alice. Uh The Boston Globe has a theory about why... Uh, this Kamala is beautiful, too. This is so beautiful. Much. So Globe. This is written by somebody who calls herself a journalist. I guarantee effing to you. Um, so the Boston Globe wrote that uh, unprecedented level of vitriol. Kamala Harris embracing number two role ends up in spotlights glare. <laughs> unprecedented. Six months into her barrier-breaking vice presidency, Kamala Harris has doggedly played the part... I would have gotten bludgeoned to death with a stapler if I ever started had a lead like that. With his barrier-breaking, that would be it. <laughs> they would be moved out with a... So there would be police photogs there taking a picture of the police-taped section of the newsroom. Kamala Harris has doggedly played the part of a trusted lieutenant to Joe Biden, uncomplainingly taking on politically unsavory tasks. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my and God. subduing any signs of personal political ambition. She is actually notably not taking on the tasks he has given her. You're about <laughs> to hear one. And she has complained. You're about to hear one uh, because the way the globe positions this task is not how Biden positioned it. And subduing any signs of personal political ambition as she touts the president's agenda. Oh, there's no signs of ambition. There's no signs of ambition at all. But despite firmly locating herself in the number two Most spot... Most people go work to work for a racist who hung around with Jim Crow people, at her words, not mine, uh, who were mean to her when he, she was a child. Most people go to work for that guy for reasons other than uh, political ambition. But despite firmly locating herself in the number two spot, Harris continues to be caught in the harsh glare of the spotlight. What does that even mean? Firmly locating herself in the number two? It means two? that she's made very clear to us all that this is Biden's agenda and she's working for him. She's just okay, the dutiful number two. And yet for some reason we keep focusing on and attacking her. Now, why is that? Why are we so obsessed with her, Tom? Well, I think it goes without saying. Republican candidates are running ads knocking her instead of Biden. 
since Biden assigned her the task of addressing the root causes of migration from <laughs> Central No, that's America. not what he assigned her. He assigned her a different task. He assigned her with fixing the border. She then reassigned herself with going to find the root causes in Guatemala. That's what happened. GOP lawmakers have been relentlessly blaming her for the situation at the border. Can you imagine that? My goodness, just because she's in charge of the border never has an answer for the media who say, are you going to go to the border? And she tells us she hasn't been to Europe either. She's getting criticized by the by the opposition party in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. That is a new one. Who I, I haven't seen that happen until this Kamala Harris. She's also found herself the target of progressive ire after repeating the same stay-home message to migrants Biden has delivered several times before. It is an unprecedented level of vitriol, said Rodney Ellis, a Harris County commissioner and former Texas state senator who is a longtime friend of Harris. Seems like a nonpartisan person to ask. But I am proud of the way she has held her head high. I love it to get the positive quote about her. They got to go to her old friend. But the honeymoon period for the first black and Asian woman to ever hold the nation's second highest office has been short-lived, if there was ever one at all. And it's you don't le- understand. The first black and Asian person has to get a long honeymoon. That's in the Constitution, too. You can't say anything about them. If nobody said a bad word about Mike Pence, I believe, till August of 2018, he had a long honeymoon. But again, he was white. The expectations of her have been so exceedingly high that I don't think anyone can meet them. And I don't know why they do it, but maybe they do it because she is good at what she does. Oh, my God. Says U.S. Housing Secretary (laughs) Marsha Fudge. Harris was Another non-biased person (laughs) in there. Somebody in the cabinet. Harris was likely always in for a rougher ride than many past vice presidents, given her race and gender. Yeah, yeah. So, wait a second. A rougher ride? Didn't the president say that he was going to pick, only pick a black <laughs> woman for the job? Wouldn't that make her race, making her ride to the firmly established vice presidency uh, easier? Seems like it. Unlike male politicians, women in executive level offices must be able to continually cite specific policy results and respond to attacks with calm and confidence in order to resonate with voters and be seen as effective leaders. Even before she was sworn in. I don't know uh, that that's true, as a matter of fact. I don't know that all women have been really calm and confident. I don't know if I look at Maxine Waters and I say, you know what? There's a person who's wound and calibrated perfectly. Even before she was sworn in as vice president, political opponents used Harris's identity to launch uglier forms of attack, such as intentionally mispronouncing her first name. She was using Kamala. Biden was using Kamala. It's this weird gaslight thing that suddenly, since we were all trained to say Kamala, suddenly they changed it so that Kamala equals racist happened at 12.01 and some unspecific dates eight months ago, and suddenly we were all racist because we were using the old pronunciation. Everybody was fine with Kamala. Biden still sometimes uses it. Go ahead. Biden's team has been defending Harris and her chief of staff, Tina Florney, after reports of infighting in her office surfaced in news outlets, although chronicling staff dynamics and drama is a staple of political coverage. Staff dynamics. That focus at times still struck some experts as perpetuating negative stereotypes about professional women and particularly women of color. 
The vice president's spokeswoman and advisor, Simone Sanders, said Harris is not focused on the criticism and referenced the difficulty of her portfolio. When you are doing hard things, all the coverage will not be glowing, but the work speaks for itself. To Harris's allies and supporters, the attention has been unsurprising. A black woman is helping lead the United oh States God. out of multiple major crises at a time of extreme political polarization and toxic racial strife. And that, they said, is clearly making some, particularly on the right side of the political aisle, uncomfortable. Those of us who are in the business of public service know it is a tough business, and she is in a place where we have never, never, never had a woman or a woman of color before, said Texas Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, a Democrat. She has to show leadership, and that is what I see her doing every day. They can't seem to find anybody who has anything negative to say about Kamala Harris. It is remarkable yeah. how much beloved this person is, considering she's taken an unprecedented amount of criticism. They can't seem to find any of these criticizers. Mm-hmm. Historians compare the attention on Harris to that on George H.W. Bush, who served under Reagan at the time, the nation's oldest president, and to Al Gore, who was tasked with modernizing the bureaucracy under Clinton. Some see parallels to Hillary Clinton, who is an experienced politician and policy wonk, seemed at times to act both as first lady and vice president. So historians compare it to George H.W. Bush Mm -hmm. and Gore? Mm -hmm. So this is not unprecedented. Um, But... The scrutiny could be more damaging to by someone the way, like Harris. By the way, mm-hmm. we gave uh, the bonehead from Delaware hell for eight years for being an idiot. <laughs> I mean, people gave John Adams hell. There's a whole HBO show about a dumb vice president. It's a great show, by the way. But mm-hmm. the office of vice president has long been known to be a joke. Since it was first established, it's been known to be a joke. And the person in it is frequently seen as unserious and an idiot. Yes, and deservedly so. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know. All right, so is that over that's now? That's over. We're done with these people. I can't read anymore. All right, so I want to get to, for a second, this guy, this teacher who was canned for playing this woman. What Are we going to pop over to Patreon, too? Oh, is that today? Yes, Dang, it's that Sunday. Is... Oh my God, I can't believe. Yeah, we should do that. I forgot so, about that. So I play the end now. Yeah, I guess I do. Yeah, we'll let people go for now. We got a lot of showing. We're over an hour in today, and uh, and we'll let you guys go. And for those of you who are over on Patreon, there'll be another little segment of show over there as well. Thank you so much, everyone, for following us and liking us and all those things. We're on Twitter at Burn Barrel Pod, Facebook.com slash Burn Barrel Podcast. We're at BurnBarrelPodcast.com and Tom Shaddock's Burn Barrel on YouTube. You can find us all those places. Wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a review. Apple Podcast reviews supposedly are like really good. Um, but if you don't want your comments to be public, you can also shoot us an email, BurnBarrelPodcast at gmail.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.